man, this is such a privilege to be here. I've heard about Liberty Hill for years, never have gotten to come up here. Um, I've gotten to, uh, yes, um, I've gotten to be a part of One Chapel since the very, very beginning. Uh, One Chapel and Mountain Gateway decided to do this really cool partnership where the local church and the missional church can try to come together and not be so separated, right? And so that's why we're here. So a representative from Mountain Gateway is preaching at every campus at One Chapel. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, super cool. I think it's pretty awesome that I get to, you know, preach in the series about what matters most, right? One Chapel's in that series. I think you started last week, right? What matters most? And as I was thinking about the message that I was going to share, you know, I'm like, all right, what matters most in life? And for me, it's pretty simple. Um, what matters most is what does the king want? What does King Jesus want for my life? What does he want to do through me? How does he want to lead me and direct me, right? But then I was looking and I was looking at Matthew 22. You can turn to your, in your Bibles to Matthew 22, 36 through 40. If you have your phone, you can pull out your phone too. It used to be, you know, you know, everybody, you could hear like all the pages turning, you know. It's not that way anymore. You're just hearing like little taps, right? Really quick, funny story. Okay, the first time I ever got to stand up and speak in front of anybody, right? It was in front of 4,000 indigenous people in the Mexican state, Mexico state of Chiapas. Right, I hardly knew any Spanish at all. And the leader of our ministry, he goes up to me and he looks at me, he's like, you wanna preach? And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay, all right. It was a conference, right? And the next year, or not the next year, the next day, I felt so bad about saying no, because I knew I should say yes, right? Of course, you gotta say yes. And the next day he come up to me and he's like, you wanna preach now? And I said, yes, sir, I will. And he's like, awesome. And I was like, great, you know, but I was so nervous, I couldn't really speak, right? And I wasn't very good at speaking Spanish, and so I just decided to read Psalms 23, right? But I get up on this wooden stage, right, and I'm shaking like this. I'm visibly shaking. I'm so nervous. And I get my Bible out, and I was like, the whole worship service, I'm like, practicing reading, you know, like, I don't want to mess up, and, and I'm practicing what I'm going to say, you know, before I get up there, right? So I get up there, and the leader of the ministry, he introduces me, and he, he get up there, and I said, God bless you, brothers. Please turn to your Bibles to Psalms 23, and I just began reading, and you could hear 4,000 Bibles, pages, turning like crazy, trying to catch up. <laughs> so it's funny. All right, so Matthew 22, verse 36. All right, it says, the, the Pharisees were talking to Jesus, said, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord. Jesus replied, sorry. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law 
and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. It's pretty amazing, right? Like all of the prophets, all of the commandments, all the Old Testament, it all boils down to these two commandments. Love God and love people, right? And really, loving people means you love God, and if you love God, you will love people, so it's all intertwined, right? Okay? And so we think about, like, oh, what matters most? Jesus literally said it right there, right? Love me. Love me and love people. That's what matters most. Amen? Does anybody agree with that? Yeah? Awesome. And so we go, all right, what does love look like? You know, there's a song, like, what does love look like, right? There's, what does love look like? Sometimes we think, like, oh, love, that's ooey-gooey, mushy stuff. I don't know about that, you know. I don't know how to express my feelings very good, you know. You ask my wife, you know, I don't ever cry, you know. So I'm like, all right, what, is, what, is, what does love look like in your life, in our life? What, is, what does it look like? In, in, in John 14, verse 21, Jesus very clearly explains, here's what love looks like. Those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who love me. There's a lot of people who say they love Jesus, but really they love an idea about him. Right? They love an idea about him, or they say that they have affection towards him. Right? How many people have we seen? They can lift their hands. Maybe they have a couple of tears go down their cheeks. You know, and they're like, I just love Jesus so much. It's amazing. Or maybe your hands are in your pockets like this the whole time. Yeah, I love Jesus. There's a full spectrum, right? Jesus isn't asking necessarily for an outward demonstration in terms of hands lifted, jumping, although he is asking that. That is a commandment in the Bible, by the way. Lift holy hands and praise to the Lord. Offer a sacrifice of praise. It is in the Bible. Those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who love me. So Jesus is putting a definition to what love is. What is the natural... Uh, what is the natural overflow of loving God? And that is obedience. Now, there's a difference in you try to do a bunch of stuff to earn the love of God. There's a difference there. That isn't what you should be doing. That's not what Jesus is asking. What he's asking is, you love me so much that there is a natural overflow of love and obedience to me. Okay, Jesus first loved us, right? Here's the gospel. Although we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much that he put himself on that cross and he said, I love you so desperately much. I'm willing to sacrifice my life for the redemption of your sin. Isn't that awesome? That's the gospel. He sacrificed everything for you and for me in obedience to his father. He poured his love into us first. And then whenever we actually truly recognize what Jesus did for us, we go, oh, I have, now I have to obey you. Not out of obligation, not out of law, 
not out of, oh, Jacob came and forced me to do it, or Pastor Darren is cracking the whip trying to cause me to, you know, to worship or to obey him or whatever. No, it's, I am so overwhelmed by the reality of the goodness of God in my life that I have to do something. I have to obey him. Does that make sense? That's the gospel, guys. Christianity 101, right there. That's like step number one. If anyone wants to follow me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. If anybody wants to follow Jesus, you got to pick up something that will cost you. You have to pick up self-denial. You have to say no to your flesh, no to your desires, no to your dreams, no to your ambitions, and say, God, I lay it all at the altar because you deserve everything. You deserve all of me, and I'm laying it at your feet. Have your way, Lord. That's what love looks like. That's what loving God and loving people looks like. Amen? You guys getting something today? Y'all are kind of serious. You're kind of scaring me. <laughs> I preach to Latinos all the time, and man, they're like, they'll shout you down. Where are my Latinos at? Guatemala. Amen. Gloria a Dios. Quien vive? Y a su nombre. Eso. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right, so guys, let's turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And we're going to look at two, uh, two contrasting stories of two influential and rich people in the land of Israel, okay? There's going to be a little bit of a lot of reading, okay? So bear with me, all right? It's all right. We're here. Amen? Okay. How are we doing on time? Yeah, we got lots of time. We're doing great. Hey, didn't Darren and Kevin kill it on the announcements? It was great. It's like really good. Okay, Luke 18, verse 18, verse through 23. All right, everybody there? Everybody ready? Okay, that's what, that's what I do in Mexico. Sorry, it's like stuck in my brain because I want everybody to actually see the word of God for themselves. All right, don't just trust what I'm saying. You need to see it for yourself, okay? So I know that's not really American. Usually there's a verse up on the screen. But anyway, we're good, right? Yeah? Okay. Okay, once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely on your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Ooh, nice. You're perfect. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Everybody say with me, treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Well, when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. All right, so we see there's a rich man. In this version, it says that he was a religious leader. 
He had lots of property. He had lots of possessions, right? Looked like he was the picture-perfect Jew, right? He had done everything. He had followed the law. He's like, all right, Jesus, what do I need to do? Sounds like he was doing a great job, right? Then Jesus says, he points on the very thing that he knew had lordship in his heart over Jesus. Whatever is in your life that has lordship over him, Jesus is going to poke on it and poke on it and poke on it and poke on it forever until you bring it into submission to him. He will never stop. Okay, we're going to keep talking about him a little bit, but we're going to continue. Luke 19, 1 through 10. If you're on your phone, just keep scrolling or swipe over to the left or just keep reading on your page. <laughs> Luke 19, 1 through 10. This is about Zacchaeus, the wee little man. The wee little man was he, right? Okay, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he became very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus, Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those that were lost. Amen? All right, so what are some commonalities between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, the rich man or the religious person, right? You notice that both had a desire to see and be with Jesus. Isn't that cool? Okay. Both were rich and influential. Now, contrasting, the rich man seemed like the ideal candidate to follow Jesus. You know, he was a Jew. He, he, he was followed the law perfectly. He was doing everything right, you know. And he's like, man, I'm going to have confidence and approach Jesus and say, hey, I'm going to ask this question of you. Now, Zacchaeus, on the other hand, we see from, this, from the narrative and from the story that no one, I mean, no one would have imagined that Zacchaeus could be used by God. They were actually upset that God would actually attempt to even be with him. Does that make sense? Okay, so Zacchaeus, he's a notorious sinner. Notorious means everybody knows that he's sinning. It's open. It's not even hidden. He's actively cheating people out of their taxes. He's stealing money from people. He's accumulating all of this wealth and possessions for his own personal gain, right? And everybody hates him. They despise this dude. 
The rich man had an outward appearance of godliness. Zacchaeus did not. He was actually despised. But the two people had very different responses to having an encounter with Jesus. Now, the rich man couldn't give up his wealth and his status because it was the Lord of his life. He couldn't give it up. It held a position in his heart and in his life that he was like, I can't, I'm sorry, I I, I can't, I can't, I can't give that up. You know, it's the only, it's the only recorded place in the Bible, only place in the Bible that's recorded where someone denied and refused a direct ask from Jesus. Anytime Jesus looked at someone in the eyes and said, you, come follow me, they dropped everything, and they were like, yes, sir, and they followed him. But this guy, he couldn't do it. Right? He couldn't surrender wholeheartedly to Jesus. Zacchaeus was so moved by Jesus, the fact that he would visit his house was so moving to him that he decided to radically give away half his wealth and make things right with those he cheated. Not only just repay what he cheated, but pay him back four times what was owed. Do you notice that, did Jesus ask Zacchaeus to do that? No, he didn't. Maybe Zacchaeus knew that although he had accumulated all the wealth that he could possibly want and keep on doing it, it actually wouldn't fill the void that was inside of him, right? The rich man was deceived by his own righteousness. You notice that? I'm doing great. I'm basically perfect. I'm doing great. When Jesus provoked the very thing that had to bound submission to him, he couldn't do it. Now, guys, listen. A lot of times, as Christians, maybe you grew up in the church, a lot of you are really faithful coming here. And sometimes we can deceive ourselves by thinking that our faithfulness to attend, our faithfulness to maybe go on a mission trip, or maybe you served it yesterday, and that's really awesome, you know, But oftentimes, we ignore the impulse of the Holy Spirit when he is poking on something in our life. And he's saying, you need to give this up. You need to stop doing what you're doing. All of the other things that you're doing, that's great. But there's something that has lordship in your life over me. And I need you. I need you to give it up. This is not a message bashing rich people at all. Lord knows we need rich people. Amen? Who here says amen? Okay? Missions need rich people. We need, missions needs funding. Okay? Like, we have a mission to cover the entire globe with the glory of Jesus. Okay? Because we actually really want Jesus to come back. Who here wants Jesus to come back? Yeah? All right. That is the Maranatha cry that every single believer should have in their heart. We say, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride, they say, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. 
okay? That cry to ask Jesus to come back provokes inside of us and fills us with a desire to do whatever he asks us to do because our life is not for ourselves. Our life is for the glory of the king. We're talking about legacy. The legacy that you live on earth isn't the, co- the, the amount of money that you give in this offering. The legacy you live give on earth is by the what response are you going to have when you have an encounter with the king? Don't be deceived by self-righteousness. Don't be deceived by your piety. Don't be deceived by how often you attend church or if you tithe or if you give an offering. Don't be deceived. Your legacy will be determined by when you have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What are you going to do? Will you turn away? Or will we be so moved by his goodness, by his purity, by his righteousness, that you go, I have to do something radical for him. I have to do something radical to respond to him who brought salvation to my house, salvation to my heart, who cleansed me of all unrighteousness. Even though I was a sinner, Christ died for me. I deserve hell. I do. I grew up Christian, but I deserve hell. But Jesus said, Jacob is worthy of salvation. He's worthy of the blood that I'm going to shed on this earth. And he comes and he meets with people. He's meeting with you now. He's provoking your heart right now in this very moment. And the Holy Spirit He's speaking to you, and he's saying, what are you going to do? I have more for you. I have more for you. I have more for you. And he's looking at you with eyes of love and kindness and compassion. But there is a demand of total obedience. Don't be deceived. There is a demand of total obedience. That's what love looks like. That is the most important thing, is that when we come face to face with the king, we don't deny him. What are we going to do when Jesus comes? Let's make sure that our, our lamps are full of oil. Let's make sure that our wicks are trimmed, that we are living every single day in preparation of the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, because he deserves everything. Guys, he deserves it all. He deserves everything that we can give and everything that we can't give. It's not about how much you do have. It's about the percentage of what you do give him. It's not about if you see, if you have an ROI of an, on your obedience here on this earth or not. If I give this much, I get this now. You know, that prosperity gospel junk, you know, like I give, give a thousand, give this, and you're going to blah, blah, whatever. If you guys don't know what that is, I bless you to not know it, all right? Okay. 
I'm going to reference Hebrews 11. We're going to wrap up here really soon, all right? Hebrews 11. If you guys don't, I, I don't have time to read the whole chapter. It's an amazing chapter. It's basically talking about the hall of faith, all right? It's talking about people who have done incredibly great things for God with the faith that they had, all right? They talk about Adam and Eve. They talk about Abel. They talk about David and Abraham and Jacob and all of these different people, and even people that we don't even know. But there's this verse that I want to highlight to you. Look at verse 13. I would like everybody to look at it, please. Hebrews 11, 13. After he begins listing out all of these incredibly amazing things, that we go, wow, that's awesome. It says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised. Huh? But they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. That's pretty amazing. Knowing that our treasure is in heaven, it's not here on earth, and whatever Jesus may ask of us, if we see fruit now in this life, wow, how awesome, but we know that our satisfaction and our fulfillment to obeying what the king wants is just the fact that we obeyed. Does that make sense? It's not on if you get whatever you want, right? God's, God's promised us nations, right? Like, God, we're, go, we're going to all of Latin America, guys. Like, it's incredible. I wish we had time to tell stories. It's amazing what's happening. And Nicaragua and Mexico, we're going all over the place, all over Latin America. And we don't have time for that. But it wouldn't be what God has promised my dad and my mom, they may not see it. They may not see it. But it's going to happen, maybe through me, maybe through Micah, maybe through his kids. Right? But something's going to happen. And we know that our treasure is, and our legacy is remembered in heaven. Our legacy is in heaven. Our legacy is with what Jesus what he remembers of us, not what mankind remembers of us, not what mankind thinks of us. We may be ridiculed. We may be spit upon. We may be destitute. We may be killed for the name of Jesus, but what does heaven remember? That's what really matters. What does heaven remember? Do you think that Zacchaeus or the rich man knew that we would all be reading about them and talking about them today? And mm -mm. Do you think that maybe if that rich man knew that he would be remembered as the only person to deny Jesus a face-in-face encounter and a direct access of him? Do you think that if he knew that all of us today in 2023 and the millions of people who know about his story and are preaching sermons about him, do you think that he would deny him if he knew what would happen and what legacy he would leave on the earth? Do you think he would know he would do that? I would probably not, right? Who wants that? 
I think God was kind enough to not tell us his name. But he is like the perennial example. Don't be him. So all of us, we need to examine our own life. And go, the canon is closed. No one's going to be writing, putting my name in the Bible. But there is another book that's being written in heaven of everything that I'm doing and I'm not doing. What does heaven remember of your life? What legacy are we going to leave behind? What will you decide to do with the encounter that you have with Jesus? What you do will determine your legacy, not only on earth, but also in heaven. 